Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/spoken today. Hi, I'm Leighton Hewitt and you're listening to the Tennis Podcast. Comebacks, comebacks, comebacks. Who doesn't love a good tennis comeback? Whether it's Andre Agassi plummeting outside the world's top 100 and coming back to world number one, Monica Seles winning a Grand Slam after being stabbed, or Martina Hingis reinventing herself in her second comeback as the world's best doubles player. And those are just the happy stories. Eurosports' Catherine Whittaker and myself, David Law, are here to talk about all of them with a little help from your good selves at Tennis Podcast. Our Tennis Comeback special is inspired by one Martin Del Potro, who played, I think, his fifth match in about two years. And it was this last week, Catherine Whittaker. It was a joy to watch him and to see him smile because he's had such a miserable time of late. Yeah, he looked like he enjoyed a tennis match about as much as anybody ever has. Um, great win for him over Jeremy Shardy. I mean, that'll do him the world of good. I mean, every match will have done, but that win in particular, I think, to be able to beat a top player, gosh, that will have been food for his soul. Uh, disappointing loss to Sam Quarry, but he's the sort of person you don't want to play on the comeback trail. Is it big serve, no rhythm? Um, didn't have a chance to see much of his matches. I saw glimpses here and there. I've heard talk that uh, he's not able to hit the two-handed backhand like he was. He's having to slice a lot more. But, I mean, he's got such power on the forehand side. It, I think there's, if he really can have a good go at this comeback now, I think there's every chance he can get back somewhere in, in, in near the top of the game, somewhere near. Well, all it takes is full physical fitness ultimately doesn't it because he does need a two-handed backhand I think in order to to get back to the real upper end of of the game but you know when you have a forehand like he has that as long as the wrist is okay isn't going to be lost to him and it's still pound for pound probably the biggest forehand in the game even even a couple of years on I think his legs can be okay. I think it's just a question of whether that those wrists stand up. Yeah, his forehand has the thing that Vavrinka's backhand has, which is just producing power out of nothing. You know, what we saw Vavrinka do against Djokovic to astonishing effect in that French Open final. That was what Del Potro did to Federer in that US Open final. It's power out of nowhere. Um, it's going to be interesting to see. I mean, obviously, the backhand was never his big weapon. So of all the shots to be diminished you'd choose the backhand I'm sure he's pleased it's not the forehand but it is going to be interesting to see how that affects his general game I'm sure he's going to have to make tactical changes to how he plays but I mean how great for us to be able to to track his progress and just be able to see him out there again how honestly I I thought he was done I thought he was finished when when he had this latest relapse. I think a year ago he was playing this same tournament or or one of them around this time of year and trying to make a comeback. And and then he had the relapse, he had another surgery. And I I really thought, just how can you keep raising yourself again to do this over and over again? I mean, I'm absolutely chuffed that he has. I hope this is for keeps now that he'll be able to, to to make a proper go of this I don't know him well I've only I've interviewed him a couple of times I've been in his company a couple of times and just thought what a what a nice guy what a decent guy and also he has real charisma out there on the court people go and watch one Martin Del Potro and end up warming to him and wanting him to win tennis matches maybe when they weren't that bothered when they when he started yeah and I don't think you're alone in thinking he was done I think most people in tennis probably felt the same as you and I think that's why 
Honestly, there was a bit of a feeling that the tennis world had forgotten him. Obviously, for for a while after he first had the injury and then he sort of tried to come back a bit stuttering comebacks, he was still there in people's minds. But then I think it got to a point where people had assumed he was a thing of the past and the tennis world just moved on from him and how that must have felt for him. You know, he's back in Buenos Aires or Argentina doing everything he possibly can. You know, tennis is still the most dominant thing in his mind. He's still focused on that every day, whereas everybody else has pretty much forgotten him. So good on him for just reminding everyone that he's even still there. Because he is one of the players that, back in Novak Djokovic's days of being a mere mortal, he used to beat him he beat him a handful of times and and was a fabulous uh, competitor and rival for all of those big players now before we get on to talk about all the other comebacks and there's so many you know when we when we first conceived this idea a few days ago my goodness the response that we got on twitter at tennis podcast people piling in with memories and examples of fabulous comebacks and it really does set them the, the memory stirring it makes you go on youtube and just start watching these people uh, making these emotional comebacks and i tell you once i get on youtube i just sit there just watching one after another just wasting my the rest of my evening uh, but before we do that there have been other tournaments this week and notably yesterday Catherine I, I watched Nick Kyrgios win his first title and I know that I get a bit carried away sometimes and I know that Nick Kyrgios is somebody who who makes me get carried away because I I am a bit of a supporter I just love watching him play and I, and I like I like his attitude I don't I don't think he's always done the right things I think he's sometimes gone over the edge uh, uh, certainly last summer and and I wouldn't condone that at all but I love watching him and this last week my feeling is that we saw a I don't know whether it's a more mature version of him but certainly a version of him that cares about maximizing his potential he wanted to win this week. I think he served 72 aces in five matches in 10 sets of tennis. He served 72 aces. And he just... He, he, was, he didn't even come close to being beaten by players like Richard Gasquet, Thomas Burdick, and then Marin Cilic in the final. Yeah, what was I saying about producing power out of nothing? <laughs> um, well, he's the new master of that, really. Um, and yeah, those matches in Marseille reminded me of a match that I saw live in Madrid last year, Kyrgios beating Roger Federer. Um, and, it, and there was a, a couple of incredibly close tie breaks. And to see him produce aces on big points in a tie break against Roger Federer, it was like, Boris Becker used to, you know, it really was that that trait of a champion. Um, so, I mean, everyone watch out, really. But but do, do you know what I mean? I mean, I saw, I made a point of, of watching the final against Chilic because I just wanted to see it with my own eyes. I'd been reading the reports. I mean, I've been commentating for BT Sport on, on the women's uh, tournament in Dubai over the last week, so I hadn't been able to see an awful lot of, of what had gone on in Marseille. But I was reading people whose view I respect, saying, you know, he's just routinely dispatching top players here. And I thought, right, well, I'll have a watch of this on Sunday. And there he was with Marin Cilic up against him. And Cilic didn't get near him. I think he had one break point in the second set. Kyrgios goes and serves two aces. Well, he's a better player than Marin Cilic. He should be routinely dispatching, maybe not routinely dispatching Marin Cilic. That's That's unfair I think the conditions suited him down to the ground uh, and he is good enough to be routinely dispatching very good players because he's more than a very good player he's an exceptional player and uh, you know he's nearly 21 now I think he turns 21 in May so he's not you know these aren't surprises anymore with his level of talent you know with the experience he's now getting under his belt but aren't you a bit surprised that he's buttoning it and actually just you know playing like a professional uh, a, a proper, you know, the, the sort of tennis that that could take him places other than just being a, a, a bit of a show pony, which I feel as though over the last year he's become a bit, a, a bit like that. He's almost caricatured himself a little bit. And this was a return to the bloke who beat Nadal. Yeah, for a week it was. It was great. Let's revisit this again in three months after the next Grand Slam, after the 
clay court season. Let's revisit it. I'm a believer. I'm not saying I'm not a believer. I'm saying it's a week. I'm saying, you know, being a professional tennis player is, um, you know, doing it week in, week out. I, I did hear his dog died during the tournament, which I can only imagine the trauma of having to go out and play your best tennis when your dog has died. So extra, extra credit to him for that. Yeah. Catherine Whittaker, massive dog lover. So that is definitely uh, something that she feels strongly about. Now, um, what else have we got to talk about? First of all, just a, just a quick note on other champions that I can recall. In Dubai, Sarah Rani, well done to her. That was a good win. Uh, talking about comebacks, uh, on a very immediate uh, note, Serana Castella came back. She'd had a couple of years out of the game uh, with, the, with really no results at all. Eugenie Bouchard, I saw her get a good win uh, yesterday in Doha in the first round. She's had a horror 12 months and, and then a really rough six months. Even Nicole Vidasova, remember her? She's making a bit of a comeback. Yeah, well, she she made movements towards a comeback last year, didn't she? She took a wild card into Miami. Um, and, I mean, there's absolutely no reason why she couldn't come back. It's a dreadful shame that she left the game at all. I know she had a baby. Um, I mean, it's a, it's a long way back because she's been out a while now. But her game's is still relevant in the women's in in the women's game there's absolutely no reason if she can find the game that she was playing a few years ago and obviously her body won't be weary although she's what 28 29 she's she won't have the the weary body of somebody that's been on tour solidly for for 15 years or whatever so um god that, i mean if she actually does make some kind of fist of this comeback that would be quite something not many women come back from radek stepanek do they <laughs> Hold on a minute. Martin Hingis did absolutely fantastically. What are you talking about? Maybe he's the uh, the common strand here. <laughs> Hold on a minute. You couldn't actually be more wrong. If I if I actually rewind this in my head, uh, people that have gone out with Ranek Stepanek and their subsequent careers, Martin Hingis is now the best doubles player in the world. Thank you very much. Petra Kvitova won Wimbledon after going out with him. What are you talking about? Yeah, you're quite right. Considering, I mean, Radek Stefanik, the, the champion maker. There you go. Um, I knew it. Now, if I was to ask you for a comeback that had worked and one that hadn't worked, what immediately springs to mind? Oh, crikey. Um, I mean, well, on paper, we know all the ones that worked on paper, I think. I, I mean, it depends what you judge it by. I mean, coming back to reach world number one, coming back to win... A I've asked you for one. One, the best one, the one... Yeah, that just one that you like. Go on, get on with it. Okay, well, my favourite one. Uh, well, I think the undisputed, most impressive comeback of all time. I can't believe anybody's... I can't believe anybody can challenge this, really. It's... Obviously, Monica Sellers. I mean, she was stabbed. I'm going to say that again. She was stabbed on a tennis court whilst playing a tennis match. That's not just experiencing a horrific injury, which took her out of the game for two years, and having to come back from that injury. She experienced the most harrowing incident possible on a tennis court. So she had to come back from injury and come back to be on a tennis court again. And... Um, I actually did a, a Champions Tour event in Belgium a couple of years ago at which she was playing a couple of exhibition doubles matches. And uh, she's an absolutely lovely lady, really, really warm, lovely person to be around. But she came with a personal bodyguard and, you know, she's clearly still, you know, that has had a deep impact on her life. You know, security was incredibly important to her. And, of course, when you think about it, why on earth wouldn't, it have that sort of impact on you but it really made me think you know it wasn't a question of in the immediate term you know getting over the hump and getting back out on a tennis court this was the most fundamentally harrowing distressing life-altering thing that could happen to her and she and she was only 19 she was only 19 when that happened and two years later and she was back out there and yes she didn't get back to world number one she didn't quite get back to where she was but she won a blooming grand slam after that she came back in 1995 uh, at the US Open and then at the very next grand slam the Australian Open 1996 she won it I mean and, and I mean that that US Open that she came back to she reached the final as well 
Yeah, I mean, yeah. It, it is mind-boggling. I mean, look, I, I love arguing with you, Catherine. Absolutely love it. I love it. If you say one thing, I want to say the other. It's just how I'm made, right? Especially when you're around. Uh, but when Monica Selesh is concerned, I just can't. I just can't because, I mean, you're absolutely right. What, what could anybody say as an example of something that is more profound and more um, gut-wrenching in terms of the... The, the, the emotions that it stirs up than, than what happened when she managed to overcome to a point where she could get out onto a tennis court again because, you know, that was in the height of my tennis supporting career before I worked in the sport uh, and, and I remember thinking of her in the way that I think, think people think of Serena Williams right now she just felt unbeatable in fact, even more so she felt like Novak Djokovic feels like right now you know not everybody was convinced about Monica Seles not everybody was that sure whether they liked her and she was just destroying everybody well she she sort of opened the debate about grunting didn't she you know there were all those controversial incidents Martina Vratilova complaining to an umpire about her grunt her grunting I mean she did divide opinion you know her style divided opinion the two hands on both sides and I think that even made her recovery even more difficult because I believe it was out when stretched out on one side that the the effects of that the stabbing injury really played a part and of course her reach was hampered more so than other players anyway by the double-handedness on two sides um, but she had won eight grand slams by the age of 19 eight of them and uh, and goodness knows how many more should have gone on to win and, and also I think she was struggling public perception wise before that incident in the, in, probably in the same way that Djokovic has had his own struggles in that everybody loved Steffi Graf that was just the, the, the way the public viewed Steffi Graf she was just she could do no wrong in so many people's eyes the same way that, that Federer and Nadal are viewed and I think that that in, in some ways it was difficult to, to get noticed and get proper appreciation in that spotlight. But, but you're right, I remember when she was out not playing the game for a couple of years, I, I thought, we're probably not going to see her play again. I mean, how you know the longer it goes, those things, that uh, the psychological effects of them, it was just so uplifting to see her come back. And st it's still a tragedy. It's still a, not only a tragedy, obviously, that she was stabbed, but it was a tragedy that she had her career torn away from her and the greatness that we would have witnessed because she would have been up there with what Graf has now, what Serena Williams has now, uh, in, in my opinion. Without question, eight Grand Slams by the age of 19 incredible and and yeah a tragedy in terms of her career a tragedy I mean not that she's not a fulfilled happy wonderful person now I'll reiterate that but a tragedy I will also reiterate that is it clearly affects her life now very much um and that's just dreadful and you know you're saying the the um you know, it, 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 Graf being the one that was fanatically adored. Well, it was a fanatical Steffi Graf fan that did that to her. I mean, how you then? Did, I mean, I, I mean, we we can't even begin to address the complex psychology of it all. But I know that I was I was reading in preparation for this sort of quotes from her on the eve of her comeback, and it's not like from the moment it happened she was determined. I won't let this beat me. I'm going to get back on that tennis court. It wasn't like that at all. She for a long time thought there's just no way I, c I can do that and it took her a while it was Martina Navratilova came down to hit a few tennis balls with her in Florida and said you know didn't put any pressure on her but said it would be a real shame if the tennis world never saw you again and, and it was that that made her even contemplate coming back again you know it wasn't one of these stories of well, obviously it was grit and determination but it wasn't like there wasn't a single moment where she didn't think about coming back to a tennis court she she very nearly didn't come back at all. Well, glad she did and uh, and still gave us some incredible memories even after that awful, awful incident. So, I was going to ask you for, your, for one that hadn't worked out, wasn't I? <laughs> well, um, I don't think Bjorn Borgs worked out particularly well, did it? I mean, it was great to see and to see him come back with a wooden racket. I mean, what a wonderful story, but it wasn't... In terms of on-paper success, 
No, I mean, do you know Bjorn Borg um, against John McEnroe, the 1981 Wimbledon final, is the first tennis memory I have. Uh, I saw that Wimbledon final. I'd never seen one before. I was eight years old. And um, I'd, my, my, while we were preparing for it, my dad told me who this Bjorn Borg was and who this John McEnroe was. And I immediately made my mind up that I was a Bjorn Borg fan. And, uh, and I was absolutely devastated when he lost that final. And he didn't play at Wimbledon ever again. And 10 years later, from 1981, he walked out onto the Monte Carlo Country Club centre court and he was up against Geordie Aracy. And, uh, yeah, you probably haven't heard too much about him over the last uh, 20 years, although he did, uh, he did reach the Olympic final, actually, a year later against Mark Rosse. But he, he beat Bjorn Borg, the great Bjorn Borg, pretty handily. And Borg had, as you said, a wooden racket when nobody else was using wooden rackets anymore. And it really just showed the game had moved on. He'd become effectively an old man. He was, what, 35, 36 years of age. And, uh, and he couldn't do it anymore. As simple as that. It was, a, it was a very sad sight to see one of the all-time greats and probably one of the most iconic tennis players of all time. Just a shadow of his former self. You're quite right. And I, and I think that's the reason why it doesn't get talked about that much. It took you to remind me on Twitter about that comeback for me to even be reminded that it happened because I think the tennis world wants to forget it, don't they? They don't want to remember Bjorn Borg as he was that day. So maybe we should just stop talking about it. All right, well, fine, we'll stop talking about it. Uh, this is the comeback special. We've got to talk about something. So let's go to Ian Rhodes, who says, uh, you can't fail to mention Serena Williams suffering blood clots in 2011. Remember, she stepped on this broken glass in 2011 when she was the all-conquering world number one. There was nobody coming close to her. She suffered this injury. She, she went down as low as... Uh, as 172 in the world uh, a year later and within two years she'd got back to world number one Uh, and you know that's where you have to look at what Patrick Moritoglu did as well as part of that comeback I think psychologically he helped her a lot but what a comeback that was yeah I remember speaking I did a short interview with Richard Williams I doorstepped him at Wimbledon that year before his before Serena Williams it was actually she just finished practicing before her first round match and uh, always good value in an interview Richard Williams you know I, I, I was a bit tentative with how I asked him because I didn't know how much he'd want to talk about an experience like that and he just said yeah I thought she was going to die um, and uh, here she is on a tennis court again months later and I just I mean I was thrown, really. I'd, what's the, what's the follow-up question to that? Um, yeah, I mean, she had a pulmonary embolism. You know, this is not just a cut foot. It became a life-threatening situation. Yeah, and there would have been every reason for her not to come back. I mean, she'd already completed several comebacks in her career by that point. How many times? Well, absolutely. I mean, we, here we've got uh, Vicky, who says, uh, what about the Serena Williams in... in 2007 at the Australian Open a lot of people said she'd never be a Grand Slam champion again yeah and I really like Vicky pointing that one out because uh, people really wrote her off that year she showed up and people said oh she doesn't look in very good shape and really just prematurely and unfairly I think had knives slightly out for her and she just shut them all up and it was great yeah I, I think that is definitely worth a mention that one what about Venus Williams. Alex Pep says uh, Venus coming back after Sjogren's syndrome and finishing 2015 in the top 10, aged 35 last year, is is an extraordinary achievement. I, I think there's some truth in that. It's a it's a less dramatic um, comeback because it's a fatiguing illness, isn't it? Which which makes it very difficult for her to play the sport. But it obviously cost her some years in terms of success, and here she is back in the or having reached the top 10 again extraordinary i think it's nothing short of extraordinary venus williams actually she's doing it in such a quiet way um that it's probably not being talked about as much as you would think and you know she isn't interested in doing press anymore you know she that's why we don't hear about it so much there are no big in-depth feature interviews with her you know she famously 
She didn't come to press again after her loss at the Australian Open to Joe Conta. It's not the first time she's refused to do that. She can come on the tennis podcast if she likes. I'm sure, you know, she won't do her obligatory press conferences that she gets fined for not doing, but I'm sure she'd be queuing up to come on the tennis podcast. In fact, here she is. No, no. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, so we don't hear much from her. We don't hear much about it, but that doesn't mean it's not sensational what she's doing. It is. It is sensational. Uh, we've also got um, a good one here from Susan Keeney, who reminds us of Thomas Muster, who I th- I'm trying to work out whether it was um, when, when about was it? it was it was early 90s, I think, in Miami at the Lipton Championships, 1989 Lipton International, just after his semi-final win over Yannick Noah. And I think he was trying to put rackets into the back of the car and another car ran straight into him and and basically crushed his legs and he he was Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless. Ready to get 30 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20 20, 20 ready to get 20 20, ready to get 15 15 15 15 just 15 bucks a month. So, give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Wheelchair bound um, for, for a while after that. I, I always remember in the early 90s when, when he was making his run to become the best clay court player in the world. And let's not forget, this guy ended up coming back. 89, he gets his legs crushed. 1995, he wins the French Open. And he was virtually unbeatable on clay. He was was the Nadal of his time. And in those tournaments leading up to, to, to him winning the French Open, they showed video of him sitting on a clay court on a chair, a specially made chair, with his legs suspended in the air on a stand because he couldn't walk and he was sitting down walloping forehand winners and he was doing this for hours on end yeah emphasis on the word walloping um because for anybody listening that hasn't seen that video immediately log on to youtube and watch after it. the tennis podcast it is, is finished it is no pause the podcast pause the podcast go and watch it okay pause right okay you need the context because it is amazing. He is not just casually hitting some tennis balls just to get the feel of it. He is grunting with effort at every single ball struck. It, I mean, it's just, I, there's nothing I can say more about it, really. Just go and watch that footage. It's amazing. He's an animal, Thomas Foster. I tell you, I know him pretty well. Hey, talking about comebacks, right? You know how we're doing positive and negative. He made another comeback, didn't he, about five years ago? He tried to get back out onto the tour in what, for, age 45? I mean, he got himself ripped in unbelievable physical condition, but his game just wasn't there anymore at that level. Oh, I mean, he was 43 years old. He's a man of extremes, Thomas Muster, isn't he? It's either it's either 20 fags a day, a lot of booze and a lot of fun, or it's, you know, mm-hmm. ultimate physical peak condition, trying to make a comeback onto the main tour, age 43. He is... Uh, an extraordinary person really it's true actually I I do remember you know when I first saw him for the first time after he kind of unofficially retired uh, I I came across him at a champ had his first champions event in 2003 in Eindhoven and this was I'd say two years after I saw him at a a tournament in Austria in St Poulton where I just didn't recognize him they virtually had to roll him onto the court he was so big and and I did this interview with him in 2003 when he'd lost all the weight he'd gone on this ridiculous Atkins style crash 
crash diet. And he said, you know, the doctor checked my blood and said, if you don't change something, you're not going to be around much longer. Because he was, as you say, smoking way too much, having way too many barbecues and, uh, and having too much of a, of a good time. Um, and he got himself into extraordinary physical condition. He then got himself overweight again about six years later. And then he had this comeback in which he, he ended up getting a six-pack like a bodybuilder. It's an unbelievable physical specimen. And uh, a good company, as you say. A really interesting guy, Thomas Muster. Uh, now, what else have we got here? We've got um, Vipul, who says, What about Rafael Nadal in 2013? who came back from all those knee injuries and everybody thinking he was finished. And he ended up dominating the hard court season and winning the, the US Open. Yeah, great comeback, worth a mention. Did worth he, a mention? I mean, did he hit tennis balls in a wheelchair or get stabs? No, he did not. I mean, of course, a great comeback, but there's quite some competition in this category. Hold on a minute, the bloke could barely walk when he was having those knee problems, could he? I mean, I think he could walk. Um... Yeah, I mean, look, you're putting me in a position where I'm having to Dis Rafael Nadal. diminish the achievement of Rafael Nadal, which I really don't want to do, but context is everything. And I'm I'm just going to encourage you one more time to go and look at that video of Thomas Mister hitting tennis balls. What are you telling chair. me that Rafael Nadal couldn't sit in a chair with his leg up in the air and hit forehand winners with a left hand like it, like Muster? He could, but he hasn't. So he can re-enter the discussion when he has. Catherine Whittaker, tough judge uh, here on the Tennis Podcast, brought to you in association with The Telegraph. Uh, now, Andy Mallon makes that point about Hingis coming back and reinventing herself as the best female doubles player in the world. I mean, this is her second comeback. Um, I remember her first one quite vividly. She, she started out in the Australian summer, and I remember her playing a match against Vera Zvonareva when Zvonareva would have been a top 10 player, and Hingis just took her to school for an hour and a half and it was it was joyous to watch however when she then started to play some of the real big hitters of the game you realized how the game had just simply moved on and it became a little bit depressing to watch this all-time great unable to physically match these players for power anymore and she retired fairly quickly after i mean there were all sorts of uh, reasons for that as we now know but then her comeback as a doubles specialist I did not see that coming especially not to be having the sort of success she is now I'm not sure she saw it coming either I don't think it was in the plan I think it was that she retired that second time um you know and that and as you say it was pretty conclusive that her game just there, there was no way around it her game just wasn't really equipped um for the for how women's tennis had evolved but she really missed the tour and wanted still to be on the tour so the only logical solution to that I mean she tried a little bit of coaching didn't she I mean that enabled her to be in and around the tour and perhaps have those conversations with people about dabbling in a bit of doubles and uh, boy is she struck on the winning formula with Sanya Mirza because they they seem unbeatable as a doubles pairing Djokovic-like no you're really right there and I, th I think it also shows just how hard it is to give up tennis, you know, especially when you're this young. I mean, you've got to replace it with something. Yeah, well, we've seen, you know, this this super coach phenomenon. It's, it, I mean, there's lots of reasons for it, but it's partly that these super coaches, you know, they miss, they're, they're enjoying being back on the tour. You look at the glee on Goran's face, being back in the locker rooms, feeling like he's back. Well, he is back on tour again. Um, yeah, he's a happy, happy, he's like a pig in muck, isn't he? Um, so, uh, so, yeah, I mean, we've talked about, that black hole of retirement that players refer to so much. Well, this is a fantastic solution, isn't it? Ian Rhodes says, what about Agassi dropping right down to the challenger circuit? I think he was 141 in the world to become a Grand Slam champion. I mean, look, this guy had so many comebacks, if you, if you actually look at it. I mean, he... In 1992, he, he won Wimbledon out of nowhere. And then he had a wrist problem himself. And, uh, you know, a lot of people were wondering whether this guy would ever amount to anything again. Then he joins up with Brad Gilbert and, and wins the US Open in 1994. And then he gets himself all the way to world number one. And then the wheels just completely fall off. I mean, as we know from his autobiography, there were a lot of extenuating circumstances, a lot of outside elements to his life 
ended up with uh, with all sorts of um, unsavory uh, business in his personal life as well, and uh, went down to 141 in the world. Basically, stopped being a tennis player and came back to world number one. I mean, I remember when I joined the tennis circuit on the ATP. Uh, it was in 1998, and one of my first tennis tournaments he was at, and it was a little provincial tennis tournament in Ostrava in the Czech Republic. There was no media there outside of the local Czech media, and I was the communications manager, and Angus, he was the only big name there. There was nothing to do, and I got, got to know him quite well as a result of that. And, you know, he was a pretty lonely figure, to be honest. Uh, that that week, he'd hardly got anybody with him. Uh, I think probably Brad Gilbert was there, which is... You know, you're not going to be short of a conversation with Brad, as we know. Um, but, you know, Andre Agassi, even then, you couldn't see him going on to, to do what he did. Because in 98, he just sort of built the foundations of his game once more. In 1999, he became an incredible physical specimen. And he started to really build up his body and, and bench press and all the rest of it. And, and got himself to world number one. It's an unbelievable story, back from where he went down to. Yeah, and on top of all of that, he had to deal with losing his hair. So That's true. There's nothing wrong with losing your hair, is there? Well, not objectively, but there was for him, wasn't it? It was a very um, challenging experience for him, as we now know. Now, Susie says, Kim Clijsters, there's a, there's a nice jolly story. Kim Clijsters, who goes off and has a baby comes back wins the US Open as you do yeah incredible I was I mean it was just a, a joyous moment in tennis what is has there ever been a tennis player as you unilaterally liked is Kim Kleisters I'm really not sure there she's given Roger Federer a run for his money isn't she yeah she really is and you know the possibly the the best um picture photograph in in tennis you know you could see all the photographers courtside in the Arthur Ashe Stadium salivating at those photos of her with her daughter Jada on on court. I mean, they were just gold, every single one of them, weren't they? It was just magical and, um, yeah, um, just a wonderful moment for tennis and obviously a fantastic achievement. She deserves a mention as well, which we've done. Actually, you know, I think you're right. I, I would say she is more popular universally than Roger Federer in terms of the risen a group of fans as there is with Federer, i.e. the Nadal fans, who don't like her. She doesn't have that, right? Did she not have just ardent Justine Ennan fans that that had it in front? I don't, I don't know, I'm speculating here, but there was quite a rivalry between those two. I mean, there was no um, bad blood, but they certainly weren't friends in the way that you, know, you, you might have expected them to be. They obviously didn't particularly gel as human beings so I don't know possibly there were there was a small collective of ardent Justine Ennan fans that couldn't bear the thought of Kim Clijsters but I'd suggest they were a pretty tiny minority I think you're probably right and now Hannah says uh, also the Clijsters winning the US Open as only as she reminds us only her third tournament back oh my goodness what about this one Kelvin Grace is Andrea Petkovic coming back from injuries I mean the catalogue of injuries that that woman had uh, and to still be a tennis player I remember doing some research on her in order to uh, cover one of her matches on BT Sport and going over the number of injuries she had she had all these knee problems and and all the rest of it and then turned her ankle on the court in the most horrific way and still is out there winning tennis matches today and also seems like a really nice person as well so well mentioned there I think this is a very valid one from Scott Brown who reminds us of Marty Fish who obviously went through personal turmoil over the last few years and uh, and has had his own struggles with mental illnesses uh, and, and the stress and panic attacks that he's dealt with and you know, seeing somebody face up to that, I wouldn't say conquer it because I, I'm sh quite sure he'll still have episodes because people do. Um, but at the same time, he's dealt with it and he's faced it and he's he's helped to spread the word about the suffering that that can cause people. And he came back onto the tennis court and left the tennis court on his own terms. 
Yeah, I want everyone to pod, uh, pause the podcast again and go and read the Players' Tribune article that Marty Fish wrote uh, last year um, on the eve of his comeback, um, his his brief comeback. It was always going to be brief. It wasn't curtailed. It was always sort of a wanting to say farewell to tennis on his own terms, which he hadn't had the opportunity to do because of his um, ongoing battle with anxiety. It is one of the bravest... A piece of writing that I've ever read in sport really um, and I know that's those sort of words are bandied around a lot but I mean I've not been physically inside men's locker rooms that much but I know <laughs> for obvious reasons but I know the atmosphere of, of of men's locker rooms I know how macho it is you know I I know how what it must have taken to have confessed to a mental illness, a mental frailty um, for somebody, you know, whose peers are, you know, people in those in those locker rooms. And I'm sure still in this in this day and age, there would be people laughing at him, not understanding all the rest of it. You know, he pulled out of the biggest match of his life against Roger Federer in New York in front of his home fans due to anxiety and to confess to that. I mean, just I'm not doing it justice. Pause the podcast. Go and read the article. He's incredible. Right, well, thanks for coming back and uh, listening to us after reading the Players' Tribune with Marty Fish. You did absolutely the right thing. Uh, But, uh, no, I wholeheartedly agree with everything Catherine's had to say there, uh, and I find Marty Fish an inspirational character. And I was actually... I I totally agree with you. There will be some people out there who don't understand, but the vast majority of the people that actually made their feelings known publicly I found very supportive and understanding and, and really refreshing actually i do feel that progress is being made in that arena and well let's just hope uh, that's uh, not the end of that progress in the future student matt student matt our very own says what about Alyssa klebanova who recovered from cancer to to reach the world's top 100 and that also reminded me of the comeback of ross hutchins who uh, we know had hodgkin's lymphoma as well and came back to win grand slam tennis matches at the australian open as well which is a fantastic achievement uh, what about uh, martin and avratilova student matt says winning mixed doubles at the u.s open with bob bryan aged 49 32 years after winning her first major yeah there's there's a there's a reason why we uh started working with student matt isn't there there's some good good shouts in there well done don't get above your station student matt all right uh charlie eccleshare our friend from the telegraph says what about goran Ivanovic winning the wimbledon 2001 title after dropping to world number 125 yeah, I, I can't believe I didn't think of that. I think the reason I didn't think of that is because it wasn't really a comeback. He was never away, was he? He just wasn't very good for a while. He was <laughs> he was he was busy breaking rackets on outside courts in in Brighton and not on the big stage where he belonged. So it was a comeback to the big stage, but it wasn't a comeback from being out of the sport. I think that's possibly why. But well, it, it deserves an honourable mention, definitely. Consider yourself honourably mentioned, Goran. Uh, Charlie also says, what about Rod Laver winning the Grand Slam in 1968 after an absence from the game for going pro seven years after doing the Grand Slam for the first time in 1961? That is a good one. It's a good one. I'm ashamed we didn't mention it before now. We should, we, I mean, Rod Laver should probably open all the discussions, really, shouldn't he? Um, yeah, excellent shout. There is a reason why we're partnered with The Telegraph. It's because of people like Charlie Eccleshare and Simon Briggs. Here's another one from Charlie. Uh, Jennifer Capriati. How about this one? Won the Australian and French Opens in 2001 and 2002 Australian Open, having been out of the game for a year from 1993 and not winning a slam match between 93 and 98. Five years she went without winning a slam match and still came back to win three Grand Slam titles. I found that uplifting at the time, I have to say. Yeah, that one has a special place in my heart because I, as a tiny little girl, I love Jennifer Capriati. I used to ask my mum to put my hair into two little plaits just like she used to wear when she burst onto the tour as a 13, 14-year-old. She's still got her hair like that, by the way, everybody. (laughs) And then she just disappeared. And obviously I was too young to really understand. I didn't understand tennis or anything like that. I just really liked her hair. Uh, and then she came back and I was like, oh, that's the girl with the lovely hair that I used to model myself on. Um, and uh, started avidly following all of her matches and really took an interest in her career and not just her hair. So that one, <laughs> that one lives long in my mind. 
Oh, it's been good, this comebacks talk, hasn't it? I'm going straight onto YouTube after this to watch every single one of these comebacks for the next four hours. Uh, now, uh, just before we go, uh, ladies and gentlemen, a week ago, your brother, your brother, Matthew, who is supposedly the biggest Roger Federer pl- fan on the planet, said that maybe he should retire. He's had a bit of stick on the on the tennis podcast Twitter feed over this awfully painful suggestion. Has he reconsidered yet? Yeah, and I've had a bit of stick from him for for exposing him, uh, and uh, he he has slightly revised his opinion. It was just an emotional knee jerk. Reaction. Tommaso Scarpa says Federer should retire. Emotional response after our semi and surgery news. Ask him again. He'll have changed his mind. It was an emotional response. I said so. I said so at the time. I, I explained that it came from a place of love. It came from a place of not feeling comfortable with Federer, not watching Federer win things. He thought it was beneath the goat to, to be losing in semi-finals. But he, he, he's he's regathered his composure now. <laughs> And uh, regained his belief, and uh, and I apologise <laughs> for exposing his momentary madness <laughs> in such a public way. She doesn't look the remotest bit sorry, I have to say. Uh, Nadal has had a couple of uh, semi-final losses. Have I changed my mind? Catherine Whitaker is written here. No, I haven't. He's going to be fine. Uh, Dominic Team, highest ranking. Hang on, hang on, let's go back to that. You've, those really haven't changed your. Those losses really haven't at all altered your prediction last week that, quote, Nadal will definitely win another Grand Slam? No. Right. Uh, I think you're mad. Leave me alone. I know what I'm doing. Uh, Dominic Team, highest ranking. Uh, the poll says number five to number nine. Uh, he, he, yes, I did a poll, didn't I? I did a poll about Dominic Team about where his highest ranking would be. He's number 15 currently. What's his highest ranking going to be, Catherine Whittaker? I think he will scrape into the top 10. Um, I think he might be a player that dips in and out of the top 10. He's good enough to. Um, great win for him over David Ferrer. Obviously, great win for him the week before winning the title as well. Um, the week before. Um, but I think he needs to seriously have a think about his schedule management because he looked awfully tired um, in his loss last week. And I remember seeing the same thing uh, last year when he won a couple of titles after Wimbledon on the clay courts in Europe uh, and then rocked up for the American hardcourt season. I mean, yes, I know he prefers the clay, but really he's got to be looking to peak at the big events, which is the Masters Series and the Grand Slams. And he showed up in Montreal and in Cincinnati and New York and just didn't perform at all, did absolutely nothing, which was really disappointing. He just looked exhausted throughout that season. So I think he needs to do better at peaking at the right times. And unfortunately for him, those events that he uh, won last year, Kitchbull and Umag, he's not going to be able to play them because of how the Olympics interferes with the schedule this year. So I'm sure he's not particularly happy about that. He's going to lose ranking points, etc., etc. I just think he needs to, if, you know, top 10 players have to manage their schedule differently to other players because they play more matches. I keep making this point, but, you know, if you're winning, you play more matches. So I do think he has top 10 potential, but he needs to do the practical side of things like a top 10 player would again I hate it when we agree but I do agree on this occasion with Catherine Whittaker I think that's about all we have time for is it now okay I thought we had another talking point David what is it the crucial talking point oh well you put out on the tennis podcast uh was it earlier today or yesterday a question about Caroline Wozniacki and whether she has too many things going on off court that are interfering with her it was a conversation on BT Sport commentary between uh, uh, Anne Cartavon and uh, Nigel Sears. Uh, Anne was asking, you know, whether maybe she was tiring herself out with the amount she was doing with her life off the court. I get the impression her focus isn't entirely on tennis at the moment. That is absolutely her prerogative. There's nothing to say that she has to focus herself 100% she only has to satisfy herself I think it's sad for tennis fans and Caroline Wozniacki fans because obviously you want to see her play tennis Um, I understand she's moved to New York which isn't the most obvious sort of training hub for tennis Um, 
And Hold on a minute. Ask Sean McEnroe whether it's a good training hub for tennis. Yeah, but he didn't train there while he was while he was playing. He would have a a, a training a, a training location as well. I don't know how much you know. It's pretty inclement weather in New York at this time of year. Anyway, um, I was. I mean, frankly, I mean, look, it's her choice what she wants to do. As I say, she's got no one to answer to her. Besides herself, I personally was disappointed to see her covered in body paint in Sports Illustrated this week. That's not what I want to see female athletes doing. I want to see them being respected for their achievements and not being, you know, we, we, we. I don't think female athlete, athletes necessarily have that privilege yet that they can do things like that, and it doesn't damage the sport. You know, there's still a point to prove for female athletes, sadly, and I think that sets it back a bit. But look, it's her. Doesn't she always strike you, though, as somebody who does work unbelievably hard? Yeah. Oh, gosh. I don't, I'm sure. I don't doubt her work ethic. I just think perhaps at the moment there's other things in her life that are equally important or more important. Or, you know, I just I don't think it's necessarily a question of laziness or unwillingness to work hard. I just think there are other focuses for her. And, hey, if she can play tennis that well and as whilst being slightly distracted and having her finger in, fingers in other pies, you can understand that, her thinking, well, if I can just take my foot off the gas a bit, still win a lot of tennis matches and do pretty well, but also have this other stuff going on, you know, it's, it, it, you don't often see it. You assume that sport is completely all-consuming, but maybe she's a model for somebody that doesn't have to do it that way. I don't know. Interesting. Interesting talking point, and uh, goodness me, there's been lots of them here on the Tennis Podcast this week. I've enjoyed them. I don't know whether you have. I hope you have, Uh, and Catherine does too. We will be back next week with more from the Tennis Podcast brought to you in association with The Telegraph. Just a quick note, if you do happen to be able to go to the Aegon Championships website, from Tuesday, tomorrow, as we talk to you, at 10 in the morning, the tickets go on general sale. So get yourself over there. See if you can get some tickets. They are not going to last long. But you never know. Give it a try. We'll speak to you soon. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.